You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. In a recent episode, we caught up on what's been going on within our own live since we took a bit of a break and we had teased some topical episode ideas uh, during that time. So we wanted to introduce some of those and uh, come back and talk about in more detail some of the projects and things that Amanda and I have each been working on that we thought would be um, helpful for other listeners. And so Uh, Today, we really wanted to dive further into the public art process 
As a little bit of a recap from the last conversation, I've been applying to public art projects, well, for many years, really, but especially since the start of 2022. And I'm currently in the process of working on a large public art, permanent public art project in Tempe, Arizona. So this project's really unique for me, and we touched on some of these things in the last conversation, but I've been learning a lot through the process that I wanted to share that I thought might be useful for other artists that are interested in similar projects or just getting into public art in general. Yeah, and when we recorded our episode for last week, it was about a month ago, and you've even been out to see where your project site is and you've been gathering materials. So you even have updates from when we last talked. So we thought it'd be good to do a proper episode where you get a chance to kind of talk about the public art process for you thus far and share any kind of insights or advice or just what, what you've been experiencing as you're, you're going through this. So I'm excited for us to share that with listeners. And I love to, hear about this process because it's just as unfamiliar to me and uh yeah thank you for being willing to to share so much as you're in the in the middle of it yeah oh of course I mean I really felt like uh I still feel like there's a lot about the public art process that can be really opaque and even within the arts it felt like this uh kind of like sub world that you know had a a pretty big learning curve and I think I've always been somewhat interested in public art as a means of expanding the scale and scope of my work in the studio and so I you know had an interest in taking on projects or creating work for public spaces whether that be paintings you know painting at a at a large scale or um, kind of expanding into other forms of what I would still consider painting, but within different materials. Um, So in the case of the project I'm currently working on, that includes some mosaic and glass, uh, which I can get into more, but but I think it's been a really like slow build to get to a project like this. And I also felt like the public art world, in addition to just there not being a lot of information about what is the behind the scenes really look like for those kinds of projects can feel like a bit of a catch 22. Like you, you need experience to get experience, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you're applying to projects, especially at a certain uh, like tier of budget, they want to know what similar projects you've worked on in the past. So I think it can be a really hard world to break into initially. But once you do, I really feel like those projects start to build on themselves. And so Um, With this being a kind of like first real break into that public art space, I wanted to share, you know, more about that process and really speaking from my own experience with this project. So I guess I just want to mention, too, that this isn't meant to be a universal guide to public art, um, because obviously this will be really different from artist to artist, uh, and even from public art agency to agency. Uh, You know, I live in San Francisco, and the project I'm working on right now is in Arizona, but I, um, you know, I've mostly been applying to and working with projects uh, within the United States, so I'm sure this is different for artists that are living abroad. So again, just kind of really speaking from my own experience with this process, but hopefully it can still shed some light on 
the public art process in general. Yeah, and we'll do more episodes about this in the future because, like I said, you're very much in the middle of the process. So if you're listening and you you have any questions for Nicole, feel free to send them in and you know maybe we can follow up with those in a follow-up episode. But uh, we also want to try to talk about these things while we're in the middle of experiencing them so we can kind of share our insights from the moment. But we're also a, a little bit removed from some of the earlier parts of the project for you. So you have a little perspective on that too. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess to start, I wanted to kind of clarify what we mean when we're talking about public art in this context. Because um, I use that term to refer to a lot of different types of projects. I mean, any type of work in a public space could be referred to as public art. But when you see like a large sculpture in um, a public park or like outside of a building, for example, I guess public art in this context refers to the commissioning body or who's funding the work. So that large sculpture, it could be funded through a public art agency or a municipality. Um, it could be funded through a commercial business uh, or the you know the owner or developer of that property. It could be funded by an individual, uh, you know, somebody who was really passionate about seeing that work in that place. Um, so there's a lot of different funding sources when it comes to the work that you might see out in the world that exists in public spaces. But what we're really talking more about today is public art that is uh, civically funded, so through taxpayer dollars, through public art agency, which a lot of uh, cities, states will have. So I really haven't done many public projects in that sense. I mean, I've tried to, you know, expand into installation-based work from painting through, uh, like, temporary gallery installations I've done or applying th to other kind of, like, temporary projects in public spaces, uh, but nothing really permanent that's of, uh, you know, a, a large scale. And those big paintings I did in Washington, D.C. last year, I would even refer to as public art, but really that was commissioned by a commercial entity. It was the owner of the building and uh, the art consultancy that proposed my work for the project. Um, so that wasn't really a, a traditional public art project, even though those paintings now live permanently in that public space. Um, so I guess to start, it could be worth talking a little bit about the differences between commercial and public projects, um, just speaking from my own experience, because that's been one of the most fascinating parts of this process, I think, is just seeing how polar opposite they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, even even now, after months of like talking to you about your project, and I remember a few years ago, we had had an episode on the podcast where we talked about public art, or we've probably talked about it several times, and it always sounds kind of abstract to me. Mm -hmm. So even just getting a little perspective on like, oh, okay, I understand how it's kind of broken down and the language used around it. Yeah. So yeah, public art, in this case, referring to how the work is funded. Um, and a lot of uh, cities will have uh, percent for art programs. So, you know, there is money or funding for public art, 
percent for art programs will require uh, newer, larger construction projects to dedicate a percentage, uh, usually like one percent of funding towards acquiring or commissioning new uh, public artworks. Uh, so that's, you know, usually set aside for uh, projects like this. And one percent might sound like a teeny tiny amount. But if you're talking about a ten million dollar uh, construction project, you know, that's what the building costs. That's still $100,000 mm-hmm. for uh, public artwork. So that's not an insignificant amount. And um, I think the process differs so much too, because um, in my experience from commercial projects, because the way that they find artists is so different. And a lot of times um, they'll post open calls. So you can find these on, you know, any website where you would find open calls for opportunities, whether it's like call for entry or CodaWorks or um, publicartists.org. I mean, there are lots of them out there and they're pretty, they will, you know, put a lot of information about the project in those open calls, including the budget, including the location, the scope of work. So that's also different than if you might be contacted by a business or an art consultancy that's proposing your work for a project. You know, they're coming to you to find out that information like, oh, we're interested in your work. And, you know, what would you quote for a project like this or for doing like this type of work in the space? So I think there's often... Um, more independence on the artist side it's like they're coming to you as they would any other like business owner or vendor to you know quote a project and then like in the case of commercial projects which is what i you know maybe would have a little more experience in even than on the public art side uh if you're getting you know asked to quote for a project then let's say you're awarded the bid you have a little more flexibility with even like just establishing the terms of what that relationship looks like. So, um, you know, typically my policy is to request a 50% deposit upfront that covers any like resources, any upfront material costs. And then, you know, the remaining 50% is at the end. And the how I'm pricing out like materials, what my time is worth, all of those things are totally up to me as the artist. So it really is just like you're being commissioned like any other business owner. So that's how commercial projects will typically come about. While public art, on the other hand, you're often applying through an open call. So it can feel much more like applying to grants or residencies Mm -hmm. or like any other type of art opportunity. But I do think that it is a bit of a numbers game. Uh, You know, in the beginning, it's trying to assemble a strong enough packet of application materials so that you can, so these applications don't eat up a significant amount of time. So I've kind of learned to scan these open calls, like figure out the most relevant information uh, that I need so that I can, you know, send in my uh, usually like portfolio, CV, and a letter of interest. Mm -hmm. And the letter of interest I have somewhat of a template for, but that's what I really tailor to the application. So my goal in the beginning is really like assembling a strong, you know, set of application materials so that I can just apply to as many projects as possible. And I've done this, you know, off and on over the years, but this year in particular where I decided I really wanted to try and you know, make a concerted effort to move into this world. I like upped the amount of that. So I think I applied to somewhere between 17 to 20 public projects throughout the course of this year and was selected as a finalist for two of them, 
which I can talk more about that process in a bit, mm -hmm. and then was awarded the one. So wow. um, again, that's just one like small glimpse into this one year. Yeah. But I think just getting to that point has taken a long time. Um, the first public art or actual public art project that I ever did was for a like a vinyl window wrap in Alameda, California that I just provided the designs for. So it was technically a permanent project, but it was very small. Um, and my involvement was relatively minimal. They already had a vendor picked out that would be printing the vinyl. And so they were just coming to me to, you know, create a design. And uh, that project actually came about through a different channel. They had seen my work in a temporary uh, like storefront space uh, through a project that I had also applied to um, in Alameda close by. And uh, somebody that worked at City Hall just happened to walk by and see it and reached out. Um, they were starting this new facade grant program, they called it, and uh, pairing artists up with local business owners. And so that one was a little unique, but I think I only got paid a few thousand dollars for this design, and then they kind of, you know, handled the rest of it. So compared to the process that I'm going through now, it was, you know, really, really uh, just a kind of like tiny dipping my toes into the world of public art. And um, I think once I completed that large painting commission, however, it really did start to open some doors in other types of projects. So I noticed that I was starting to get more invitations to apply for open calls, for example, like someone reaching out saying, hey, we think your work would be a good fit for this. You know, you should consider applying. And then again, just having a like a piece like that under my belt, I I've, I've felt, you know, more confident in going out and increasing the number of projects I was applying to. So I think those are a few factors that led to being a little bit more competitive this year with some of the projects I was applying to. Um, but there are a lot of different gateways into it, uh, like I was saying. So I think to try and circumvent that like catch-22 of needing experience under your belt to get more experience in public art, um, there are a lot of ways that you can demonstrate that, whether it's through other smaller public projects or through commercial projects or even through other uh, like temporary installations or projects that you've done. So I think all those things can be stepping stones into... Uh, you know, taking on kind of larger, uh, larger projects, whether in terms of the scale, the budget, or just the scope of the work. Yeah, I'm curious with, I guess, as you're doing, as you're just in the application phase, just putting your yourself out there, how much of the project you have figured out by then? Is it sort of a here's what I'm capable of, here's an idea, or is it like oh. a pretty refined uh, proposal at that stage? Yeah, that's a good question. N not at all. No, I have 0% of the project in mind at the time of applying for it. And when I'm looking at open calls, I will, I, I, I don't know, I kind of have a rule for myself too, where I'll only apply for uh, what are called RFQs or request for qualifications. Mm -hmm. And those are open calls that are looking at your past body of work. Um, you know, they're looking at your resume and your letter of interest, but um, they're not asking for any proposal materials or any work that's, you know, beyond that at that point. Um, sometimes places will post what are known as RFPs or requests for proposals that are looking to see more fully fleshed out ideas. But I think that there has slowly been a move away from those types of asks because, 
they recognize that, you know, the, that's expecting a lot of artists up of work from artists up front that they're not getting paid for. Yeah. And it's not considered a very equitable way to approach the process. So I only apply to RFQs and the letter of interest is where I'll try and pull language from the open call. So when I'm skimming these, you know, sometimes they're like 10 to 20 page briefs, but you really don't necessarily have to read all of the information. You just need to look at the eligibility requirements to know, you know, is this project a fit for you? And then I'm always just looking for key phrases around like what their their goals for the artwork are or like what just language, like what type of work are they looking for so that I can reference that in my letter. But, you know, I pretty much have a, a template that I use for all of my applications and I try not to spend more than you know, I think like it, it also gets easier the more things you apply to. So I, I kind of have like these just like filling in the actual application form sometimes takes the most amount of time. But I have, you know, all of my images and my CV and then, you know, previous letters of interest ready to go so that I can easily modify. And it, it definitely gets faster um, if you're starting to do this regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Then you kind of just have your materials at the ready and just can alter them per per application as needed. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then what I was going to say, and maybe this is a good segue into talking about um, what happens once you've made it to that next stage of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for RFQs, you know, you're applying through these open calls, and then what'll typically happen is the public art agency or the committee who's ever reviewing these will select a handful of artists as finalists for the project and then you'll receive a small stipend to produce a proposal that is really um, more you know geared towards the site Mm -hmm. and that involves more research and more um, of a fully fleshed out idea of what it is specifically that you want to do for that and that it's kind of like an interview honestly so you know, I'd applied to all these projects at the beginning of the year. And then um, while I was at my artist residency in April of 2022, I think was when I found out that I um, was a finalist for two of these projects that I'd applied to. Uh, so one of them was for the School of Nursing at Rhode Island College. This was a an existing site. So the building was already there and they were looking to commission an artwork uh, to for like the student lounge area um, or kind of reception space as, as students were walking in uh, to this like newly renovated school of nursing. They wanted to have some kind of art piece that, you know, amplified the, the space and that activated the natural light. And so I was interested in that project because I'd also been doing some more like sculptural installations that activated natural light with uh, suspended pieces of acrylic. And so I kind of already had an idea of what I wanted to propose, but throughout the process, you know, we had a meeting with the the dean of the School of Nursing and the other committee members where they talked about the history of the school and what their goals for this public art project were. And those uh, initial site visits, uh, whether they're virtual or in person, um, are really, really valuable because that's where you're getting all of the information that you need as the artist in order to craft your proposal. Um, So that usually happens right at the beginning. And then, you know, you might have like four to six weeks to put together a proposal. And then you'll come back together and you'll 
present your uh, your pitch in front of this committee of maybe like um, I think six or seven people, and then they'll decide you know which of the three or four artists or artist teams that they want to work with or award the commission to. So that was one of the projects that I was a finalist for, but didn't end up getting. Um, and then the other project was for this public park and recreation center in Tempe, Arizona. Um, that was fairly open-ended, so this was a new construction project, as in the um, the building hadn't been built yet, the park hadn't been renovated, um, but they were going to build a new community pool, and they were looking for an artist that could like propose multiple public art integrations. So they wanted a uh, like potentially a series of works that could connect the building and the park, and they had to be. Um, construction grade material so in other words like very permanent um but there weren't any real restrictions on like the type of artwork they were looking for Mm -hmm. Um, they gave some examples and ideas like you know you could work in concrete or like some kind of sculptural material or tile mosaic or um, glass or i'm trying to remember what other examples there were I think I'm just thinking of those because that's what I ended up going yeah. with but you know the the proposal for that project was really open-ended but even between those two I think you can see that there were a lot of differences so the one uh, you know within an academic setting was a project that they were commissioning for an existing building so there was no new construction it was really just you know you as the artist you're you're proposing your piece, you're going to make it, we're going to install it here. Whereas this Tempe project was uh, at a much earlier stage, so it's brand new construction. They were looking for something to be really integrated into the architecture. So to me, that just meant more collaboration with the architects or the contractors to create work that was really kind of permanently woven into the design of the building. And because of how involved that is, that project also came with a much bigger budget. And so I noticed pretty early on, um, just even at this finalist stage, that the just the, the nature of these public projects really varies a lot depending on the public art agents, the type of project it is. Um, because every city is going to have a different team and works a little bit differently. And so even just culturally, I felt like the personality of those places and projects was really different. So I think, again, a lot of this is kind of subjective, but I was really excited about this Tempe project because it was so open-ended and because I think within my own practice too, I had been kind of looking for ways to take my paintings into the realm of like spatial design or architectural design, you know, like a lot of the artists that I really have been influenced by, um, like Matisse had created this Chapelle du Rosaire in Southern France that um, involved designing stained glass windows and the entire building and these murals. He created these tiles. He designed the the robes uh, that the priest would wear. So it was really this like translation of his cutouts and collages and his you know sensibilities as a painter into creating what was this really beautiful chapel space. And then similarly, Ellsworth Kelly had designed his piece Austin mm-hmm. um, towards the end of his life and took all of his interests in color and painting and sculpture into this um, this chapel that he designed and you know brought in these elements of stained glass. And so the entire environment really became like the artwork itself. And I thought, um, it was just really beautiful how these artists and painters like took their 
uh, sensibilities and approach to color and form into like, you know, this whole environment for their work. And so I think I've been really interested in those ideas for a while, like even in some of the earlier gallery installations I'd done, I'd been trying to like activate the natural light within a space um, in very DIY ways, like using colored window films or just like finding ways to um, merge my you know, my language as a painter in with the, these more like natural elements, like the light that was coming in through the windows of a space. And so I think with this Tempe project, it kind of represented a, an opportunity to really like fully step into that kind of work. And so I felt like just from the beginning that this project, I, I felt like a really deep connection to this project and that it was like truly a good fit for my work and I was genuinely excited to be proposing something new and and you know that I had never done before so I think I don't know I, I do think some that translates into the proposal that you create or just um, you know really keeping your eyes out for those kinds of projects because I, I think or I hope that you know those committee members can see that or sense that where it feels like you know this is a project that is really aligned with your studio practice um, and that you're really genuinely excited about. So I just wanted to, I guess, dive a little further into that proposal phase. Um, so I mentioned you may have a couple of weeks or a month to um, put together a proposal from the time that you found out that you're a finalist to when you're you know, pre presenting your ideas to uh, this panel or committee. And um, oftentimes the committee for these is a mixture of, you know, various people with some kind of a vested interest in the project. Um, so in the case of the Rhode Island project, which was the existing academic building, um, I was proposing this like suspended sculptural installation. Um, the committee was comprised of the dean of the School of Nursing, uh, I think a couple of faculty members, from the School of Nursing and then a few from other parts of the college. Somebody from the maintenance staff who would be tasked with having to maintain the artwork or you know keep it in good condition over the years. And um, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else, but you know, everybody kind of has their own values or priorities. So I think again, that initial meeting or site visit you have is really important because you'll be able to get a sense for what those are and, um, you know, what each person's goals for the project are um, and, and kind of reading between the lines so that you can incorporate some of these things into your pitch or, you know, your interview. Um, and those are pretty brief, too. You might only have, I think, like 15 to 20 minutes to present your proposal and then um, maybe another five or 10 minutes for a Q&A. So it goes by really fast, but a lot of that month is just spent in preparation and putting together like, a, like an actual slide deck with your ideas and your images, um, you know, any kind of like renderings or sketches you've created, the research that you've compiled. And this is both on the artistic side and um, more logistical things. So uh, doing research into um, the, the budget, like how much are 
materials or fabrication or installation going to cost? Um, that's all a part of this proposal process. So, you know, with commercial commissions, just going back to some of the differences between those, um, you, you'll do some of that upfront, but there's definitely not as much research involved. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I probably don't spend any more than like 10 minutes just doing some quick calculations. If someone reaches out to me for a quote, um, because often that means they're like presenting your work, maybe even, you know, the next day to a client and they just want to gauge your interest. And so you're really just trying to um, kind of like quickly estimate, okay, what is my cost per, like whatever, per square inch or square foot, mm-hmm. or like, you know, do some quick calculations on materials to come up with a ballpark um, and then give that back to them as a quote. Whereas with um, public art, it's much more detailed and involved upfront. Um, but there's also some really fun aspects to the process. So for the Tempe project, because it was so open-ended, um, I really didn't know what type of artwork I was going to propose at first. Um, and so I was trying to gather inspiration both on you know the area, like things that were interesting to me about the location, um, and then also trying to gather inspiration through other types of public projects or the work of other artists. Um, so I kind of used that project as an excuse to start reaching out to local fabricators who are the teams that will often, you know, work with artists to help produce these more ambitious public projects. Um, so like if you've ever seen uh, an artist that has, you know, maybe they've just, they're a sculptor, but they just did this really massive, um, like bronze piece for a, like a large you know, outdoor area, and you're wondering, like, how did they create that piece? Like, I have never seen that artist work in bronze before. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they may have done some aspects of it themselves, or they're designing the piece, but um, oftentimes with these larger scale projects, um, these artists will be working with art fabricators. Um, So there's, like, this whole other world of teams of you know fabricators that can they're they're specialized in working in different materials and they're also familiar working with artists Um, so that's kind of their specialty is helping to produce these public projects and so I'm sure if you uh, start doing some online research uh, wherever you live there are probably some art fabricators in your area Um, and if not you know artists are also pretty resourceful and uh, even if that company or that business hasn't doesn't have experience working with artists before sometimes it's a matter of uh, just calling around and finding the right you know kind of like sympathetic metal fabricator who's kind of interested in taking on this more artistic project so sometimes it's a little bit of that but Um, In this case, I started meeting with local fabricators in and around the Bay Area just to get a sense for what was out there, what was possible, um, touring their spaces, like seeing examples of other projects that they worked on. And then like slowly through all of this information gathering and online research and kind of letting yourself fall down these rabbit holes, you know, your ideas for the project will kind of start to take shape. So I knew I wanted to do something in glass uh, as soon as I saw the renderings for this building. um, And because the neighborhood that is surrounding the park um, has a lot of mid-century modern architecture, it's very influenced by that era. And, you know, a lot of mid-century modern homes will have elements of stained glass in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is just a medium that I've always been interested in. So I wanted to find a way to incorporate that somehow into this project. 
Um, so then it was kind of figuring out, okay, well, what type of material exactly? Like, um, are there glass fabricators? Um, you know, can I meet with them? Can I learn more about, like, what would this look like? Can they, you know, possibly provide me some estimates so I could get a sense for how much mm-hmm. a project like this uh, would cost? Um, and then in the case of the mosaic piece, I had stumbled on another artist in the Bay Area who had done um, this really large abstract mosaic that I was really inspired by uh, using a technique called lithomosaic, which it turns out is a patented process invented by this artist in Southern California. Um, and she's licensed the installation to um, a number of concrete installers around the country, Mm. uh, one of which was based in Phoenix near Tempe. Um, And she had also done a number of uh, local projects around the Phoenix area. So all of a sudden this, um, you know, method had a local connection to the Tempe area. And, uh, you know, one of the the like five installers around the country happened to be based in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like, oh, this is a process that I could I could use and, and do here. Um, and then this could be another way of like translating my paintings into a new material. So that's kind of what led me to incorporating the mosaic. Um, so those were the two main, I guess, um, parts of this project were these kiln-formed glass pieces Um, that I proposed throughout the interior of the building. And then this uh, large exterior mosaic uh, that would be at the front entrance to the building and kind of lead visitors into um, either the recreation center or the public pool. Um, So those were the main main aspects. But I think something else that helped me in this proposal is that I, um, you know, I had a number of other ideas. So I had like quoted out what I thought those two types of work would cost, but um, I think because the idea for this project was to create a series of integrated artworks, I had some slides where I pitched other, you know, other possibilities if budget allows. Mm-hmm. Like we could uh, collaborate on um, things like benches or planters, or I even had like another section of glass. So I think there was a lot of flexibility within my proposal. It wasn't just like, you know, here's exactly what I'm proposing and this is it. But it was really, um, yeah. I think I was also trying to invite like feedback from the panelists, you know, like this is your space and I'm excited to hear what resonates with you and you know obviously everything that I was proposing I would have been really excited to make I felt like it was really connected to my practice but I also wanted to position it in a way that um you know there was still like some open-endedness and room for collaboration Mm -hmm. so I think that that really helped in the proposal process and just speaking back to the things that were brought up in those initial site visits, like things that were important to them and making sure that I referenced those in the the presentation so that it felt like this, this project is really specific for this space, like it couldn't have been proposed for anything else, if that makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to ask regarding the proposal you had mentioned before about the proposal stipend. Is that... Do you know if that's common for uh, artists to get a stipend while doing a proposal, like whether they're chosen or not? Yeah, um, I believe so. I mean, it definitely should be. I think um, for those RFQs where they're inviting a number of finalists, you get a stipend whether or not you're awarded the project. Mm -hmm. But I think 
you know, what you often hear from a lot of artists is, well, they, they end up spending a lot of the money from the stipend on the research or on getting material samples made or things like that, yeah. because the goal is really to win the project. So I don't know if the stipend alone is really, you know, it's, it covers a little bit of your time, certainly. But I think I'm trying to remember how much they were for these projects. Um, and it varies also depending on the public art agency. So the, the stipend... For the Rhode Island project, I think may have been like a thousand or maybe fifteen hundred, and then the overall project budget was around thirty thousand. Um, and the Tempe project, ironically, had a smaller uh, proposal stipend. I think it was maybe like four or six hundred dollars. Oh, okay. Um, but the project budget was two hundred thousand, so it was much more significant. Uh-huh. And often the stipend will, I think, you know, if you're bidding on a a million dollar project, maybe that stipend is a few thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think they try and, you know, it's sort of like relative to the amount of work they expect the proposal to take. Right. But I think something that sort of helped this last year too is that throughout the pandemic, um, you know, things have shifted to be a little more virtual. Um, I have noticed that there are aspects of the public art process with, again, just working with uh, like city government and public art agencies. Mm -hmm. It can be a little bit bureaucratic, um, slower processes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is very new that, um, you know, a lot of these meetings, like the site visits or even the final presentation are done virtually. Um, Or at least that was the case with the Arizona project. But for the Rhode Island one, um, they had kind of a hybrid model where, you know, some of the artists that were local um, were able to be there in person. And then um, others like me and another finalist were both on the West Coast. And so we were, you know, zooming in. But I definitely had, uh, I guess, some thoughts like, should I have flown out there to be there in person for either the site visit or the presentation? And then you always kind of wonder, like, does that affect your chances at all and it really shouldn't but anyways I just think like you know there's a little more flexibility now in like our our pandemic world with uh, some of these meetings being virtual Mm -hmm. I guess is there anything you would want to add regarding the proposal phase or any like thoughts or advice yeah I think um yeah before like moving into the next kind of phase of the project um or at least the one that i'm working on i think that proposal phase alone is a really great learning experience and you know even though that didn't that rhode island project didn't pan out i don't look at any of that as wasted time i think that all of that work goes somewhere you know it's all building on ideas that you may have or um, maybe that project will manifest in a different way in another location or another point in time. So I think that it's all kind of in service of your practice. And I think uh, just like reiterating those initial site visits, I think are really important for gathering information. So like taking lots of notes or if they're virtual, are they recorded? Can you listen back? Just like anything that you can absorb that's going to help you in the presentation. And then I also just think proposing things that you're really genuinely excited about. I do think that will translate to a committee. Or, or that's what you know I was told in the case of this Arizona project. And there were some things that I felt like I was working up against, like I was the only independent artist 
pitching against two teams, um, one of which had a few, uh, like a team of architects, and both of which were based in Tempe, Arizona. So I felt like I was at a disadvantage by being an independent artist who was not local. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a great conversation with my partner, Dave, uh, kind of, you know, in the midst of this. And he said something to me like, you're not going to out-architect the architect. Like, don't look at other people's don't look at your weaknesses and other people's strengths and try and, you know, propose something that feels like so out of your wheelhouse that you're, you're just like in a different ball game. And so I think really just looking at what, what resonates with you about this project. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that goes back to like finding that genuine excitement for it. And I think what I could bring to a project like this was my sensibilities as a painter, you know, it was my approach to color being like really, really related to that sense of place. Um, It was the like kind of open-endedness that I was proposing a mixture of mosaic and glass. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can confidently say those things now that I found out that I got the project. But, I, you know, in the moment, you can kind of easily psych yourself out. And I think just really leaning back on what is most distinctive about your work and letting those differences be your strengths. Uh, So that was really good advice in the process. Um, And just seeking out input, I think I used, you know, that time to, again, meet with lots of local fabricators. I was reaching out to other artists that had done similar types of work uh, to, you know, get their input or even just like a little, um, like, where did you, you know, research your materials for this? So I think relying on that artist community too, uh, it's kind of a great excuse for that. Oh yeah, finally, just, I think in the, in the picture proposal too, it is a chance to really, you, you are selling them on your vision and your ideas. And so I think something else Dave had mentioned to me in the process when um, I was getting really hung up on logistics was, you know, you just have to present them with a cool sketch. Like this is really about getting them excited about the potential and the possibility. And of course you need to be well-researched and, you know, have kind of done your due diligence when it comes to uh, like, you know, p- pricing things out and figuring out like logistics of installation, but there's time for that later. Like that's what, you know, if you're awarded the project, that's what that process is for. So Mm -hmm. not needing to to have um, every little detail figured out. Okay. Uh, So just making making sure to address those things. So like I had, I was going to spend all this time talking about the budget because I thought that was going to be so important. And again, like a bit of advice was just to like, you know, have the slide there. We addressed it. I had, you know, I think I spent two seconds saying like, here's all the research I've done. Like, you know, I'm not going to read this for you, but happy to come back and answer any questions. And then I got right back to talking about the vision for the project. And I I think that worked out really well because you don't want to dwell on, you know, here are all the logistics and I figured out exactly how I'm going to produce this. Mm -hmm. They obviously need to know that you've done your homework, but Again, like the pitch is about getting them excited for the potential. Oh, I love it. That's great advice and excellent advice from Dave. I love that. Like you're not going to out architect the architects. Yes. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, again, like that, the meeting with fabricators that I had really done for my own research, that became another point that I could speak to because I knew I was pitching against these teams. I could say, you know, hey, I work independently as an artist, but, you know, I've met with these fabricators. They're excited about this project as well. Or, you know, here's the research I've done into how we're going to produce these things. So I, I had, you know, already explored some options for how we would produce the glass pieces and what was unique about the mosaic is that it was something that I could fabricate myself here at my studio and then we already had the local installer lined up so I think those were you know ways that I was trying to like mitigate any concerns that they may have had around the fact that I was a solo artist versus what maybe like a a a bigger team could bring to the project right And it's helpful to know that, I mean, obviously, whenever you are putting together a proposal that includes a budget, you should have a pretty good idea of the budget you're putting together. But it's helpful to know it doesn't have to be completely precise and exact at that stage because there's there's time later to kind of dig through the minutia, be like, okay, this is actually how much, like a little bit closer as things move around a little, but... Yeah, and it's inevitably going to change, too. Um, So it's, yeah, good to know. Um, I'm looking at your notes, and before we, like, walk away from budget stuff, do you want to talk about also figuring out how to budget for your, like, budget your time and your rates and paying yourself through this process on top of paying for all the materials and, and outsourcing involved in doing such a project? Yeah, definitely. Um, There's a lot to share on that front. And I know I said I didn't spend a lot of time on the budget in the actual pitch, um, but there was definitely a lot of time spent researching. And then once I found out I was awarded the project, um, because of the, I don't know how common this is, honestly, but because this one in particular involved a number of Uh, different pieces, you know, within the umbrella of this project, we decided to kind of split the, like the contract up, I guess, into two phases. So for the first like five or six months, we, we decided to have as the design phase, basically. So that was the time that we were, they, they, you know, they want to get you under contract right away. They want to get you like your initial deposit or like set up some initial payment milestones right away so that you can get working and just to cover like that time meeting and, you know, furthering the research. And so we decided because um, the project was a little more complex that we were going to, you know, have a a first contract that was just for this design portion. And that was going to give us the time to kind of figure out the second contract, which would include the fabrication and the installation. And like how all of that was was broken down. So the budget for the design phase was broken up into several like payment milestones. And then like throughout that time, we've been kind of like putting together the the details for this, um, this second or this fabrication phase, which we've just entered into now. So I guess overall, if you've never like put together a project budget or um, again, this process is new, there are resources out there for it. So we won't go into too, too much detail, but I would say in general, like the like the line items or the categories, I guess, that you'll probably have would be your, um, well, your artist fee for one. So, you know, I mentioned that 
when you're applying, they're usually publishing these budgets up front, and there's quite a range. So for this Tempe project, the budget's 200 grand, which is pretty significant. You know, there's a lot you can do with that, um, but it's probably kind of like a middle tier for as far as public art projects go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a 10 to 20 grand project. That's a little smaller, but it's also not uh, like a multi-million dollar um, airport project or something like that, right. you know. So it's it's sort of like uh, like middle stage, I guess. And your um, your artist fee is maybe like twenty or maybe like twenty five percent of that. Um, but there are some ways you can get creative with what goes into that, I guess. So um, in my case, I'm fabricating the mosaic piece myself. So there's some additional costs or like artist fees associated with that. So that's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit. But um, your artist fee, you know, would be a percentage of the overall project budget. Materials and fabrication would be another huge category. So, you know, whatever you're proposing, just the resources to get the materials for it and then to actually make the thing whether that's happening you know whether you're doing that personally at your studio or like we've discussed you're you know outsourcing that by working with a art fabricator installation is another big category so you know how are you going to install the artwork so in in my case it would be like um, paying the concrete installers to you know put in the final mosaic and then things like shipping Insurance is usually one, so I have to have like, you know, like special commercial liability insurance Mm -hmm. or general liability insurance for this, like any kind of business registration fees if you're working on a project locally. Um, So there's little things like that, that that sort of add up. And I actually have my budget here, so I'm just trying to look to see if there's any other categories that I'm missing. But what was interesting about this project too because you know everything we were proposing was kind of uh like permanent um, architectural integrations and this was part of a new construction there was what we were looking for were potential areas of overlap with other I guess other budgets or line items so you know the public art is like one component of this larger build but if I'm proposing a series of like colored glass pieces in the interior and they're already planning to put glass windows in there anyway, well, you know, how much do they have budgeted for just that plain clear glass? And then what's the difference between that and the colored glass? So we were trying to find like some creative uh, points of connection between these other areas so that, you know, the entire like cost of the glass, the installation and everything wouldn't come solely out of the public art budget. And same thing with the mosaic. So, you know, I'm proposing a mosaic piece, which costs a certain amount to produce, but they were already going to put concrete or something at the entrance anyway. So what did they have allocated for that? And then, you know, can the public art just cover the difference instead of cover that entire section of concrete? So that's where I think like the public art agents that you work with are really your best advocates through this process. You know, these are not things that I have the skill set or the knowledge to be able to negotiate by like working with a contractor or it's just a much bigger learning curve. But the public art agents, you know, they also work for the city and they have more of a bird's eye view into this project. Um, They probably have relationships with these people. So they're really working 
for you behind the scenes to help figure some of these things out. Um, and they might be able to, you know, present ideas that you just wouldn't have thought of. So for example, we decided with the glass work just because of some of the like insurance and liability and um, ease of like communication, we decided to fold that into the contractor's contract instead of the public art contract. So even though I had already done like all of the research and found the glass fabricator, figured out where the materials were gonna come from, made all of the artistic decisions on what the glass was gonna look like, as far as the budget goes, decided to just call this like consulting, like a consulting fee. And then the contractor was going to be the one that directly paid the glass fabricator mm. and, you know, the glass installer that they've hired that's going to install the rest of the glass windows is also going to install our glass. So we ended up actually breaking that part of the project out of the public art contract entirely so that doesn't really like that money doesn't exchange hands with me anymore and I'm just kind of there to provide like consulting advice mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things that again this is like very in the weeds and you definitely wouldn't have to worry about this or even think about it at the proposal stage but once you're like in the midst of a project I think these are just like some of the creative ways that you can work with your public art agents to figure out like creative solutions to how to make these things happen because I think what's important to remember is like everyone's excited to to work with you like they want they want to see this happen as well and so they're gonna want to help find creative solutions to like where can we save here or can we like do this a little differently to make it easier or you know, they're, they're going to help propose solutions. Um, and then as far as like making sure to pay yourself. Yeah, I think that was also a conversation when it came to how to break up the payment milestones. Um, and in this case, we really had to or I had to advocate for for front loading a lot of the material costs to make sure that I had what I needed for this mosaic piece um, because I was going to be fabricating it myself and you know because I'm a solo artist with studio rent to pay and it's really just me here I have to make sure that you know I'm I'm covered if I'm going to be spending the next four to five months almost exclusively working on this piece when I'm you know potentially not or maybe I have to say no to other projects because they conflict with this so I definitely need to make sure that whatever I'm budgeting for fabrication will account for th that time and so I think again a, a lot of it is just communication I feel like I can't underscore the importance of that enough because it's you know one part is research and then the other part is just being really like communicative with whoever you're working with because uh, initially we were going to just have like four even payment milestones spread across you know once like every two or two and a half months mm -hmm. but what I was realizing was that you know if we broke it up in that way it wouldn't account for the real expenses required up front in order to get this off the ground and so in yeah. order to meet the project deadlines we were going to need a lot more in that first milestone and then you know maybe the second third or fourth could be a little bit smaller but it's not just a matter of convincing the public art agents um one thing i think i forgot to mention this um especially with like these larger public art projects is the reason that there's like so much research and you have to like you know itemize your budget and break all of this down ahead of time is because this project is being funded with 
taxpayer dollars, essentially, mm-hmm. it's got to go through city council approval. So the final designs and like the budget we created had to, you know, go go through this like added layer of approval before we could move forward with it. So we just had to be able to justify whatever requests we were making or like whatever decisions were being done, which this is, again, just something that feels totally unique to the public art process to me. Like in the case of a commercial project, there's there's like little to no question. It's just like, oh, here's what it costs. I need 50% up front. Okay, done. Like mm. we'll send you the deposit next week. And it feels like a much um, easier process. And that's not to say that there aren't like pros and cons to each. I mean, you could say that there are more stakeholders and more channels of approval with public art. Whereas with a commercial project, you know, maybe it's just like, the CEO of a company deciding whether or not to move forward. So, you know, you could look at that in different ways. It's like less channels of approval, but maybe your the the direction of an artwork is kind of decided on the whims of a single person versus with public art, there's more opportunity for collaboration. There's often much longer and slower timelines with public art, mm-hmm. uh, which can be good if you were, you know, in this case, it's kind of providing me with some stability for the next six months where I know I have this project on the horizon and then I can kind of like supplement it or find ways to fill in the gaps with other projects. Um, whereas with commercial projects, I've found at least they tend to be much faster. Um, so that can be good if you're like ready to just fully dive in and commit yourself to a project, but um, it can also mean that you might have to sort of like drop other things on a hat and just like shift gears quickly in order to meet like a business's deadline. So you know, like there's can be some more bureaucracy with public art, less oversight with private commissions, but at least like you're working with a pre-established budget. Again, it's usually pretty transparent from even the application phase. What uh, you're going into with a public art project versus with a private commission, there's much more opacity. You, you know, you're just trying to make sure whatever you quote is going to align with what you need, but they don't necessarily tell you what their budget is always. So there's just lots of uh, lots of differences, and they can all be pros or cons depending on you know how you look at it. Yeah, I've definitely learned throughout this process just like figuring out how how to break out the budget in a way that not only materially accounts for like the the hard expenses for the project but also just uh, for time um, because again now that you know I'm working on this a little bit longer term over the span of um, like a year a year and a half potentially um, from 2022 to 2023 I have to be a little bit more I guess, like strategic with how I balance between this and other projects um, and just making sure that because this is the thing that is sustaining me, you know, I'm not it, it really does matter, like when those payment milestones hit and how much they are. And I need to make sure that I'm accounting for uh, like my studio costs in the meantime. And we even ran into um, some issues with this during that first design phase where I think, um, you know, in, in the rush to just get the project going, the way we had them spaced out was uh, didn't really account for what I, I think I needed. And the I think, you know, we had the first like 10% of the budget for those first like six months. So like six months into the project and, you know, we'd only received like 10% of the budget. So 
um, now that we're in the fabrication phase, like things are really moving and we've just gotten that first, um, you know, much larger deposit. So I was able to move forward with purchasing materials and like doing other things I needed. But it was, I think like figuring out your cash flow, that's, that is important. And things felt a little tight there for, for a minute. And, you know, often it's with public art too, like you're not um, invoicing until after you've turned in these deliverables, which again, with a private commission, you may be able to just ask for a certain amount up front and that's your agreement. Whereas with public art, it's, um, you know, you get paid after the work's already been done. So I think there's just a lot of shifts that I'm adjusting to and figuring out how to make it work for you as an artist, especially if um, you're intending to support yourself through your work is, um, is important. And I just think, I just think it's a learning process. Like some of it is like just going through it to kind of figure it out. Cause I'm not sure if, you know, these are things I could have necessarily planned for. Yeah. But just expect delays. That's all I can say. So make sure that you do have a buffer <laughs> What or delays other projects to hold you over. <laughs> well, it's so funny. Cause I feel like this has been, I mean, as much as I've been feeling like this, um, the process, it's been pretty seamless overall, I will say, but I, you know, it has been feeling much slower to me than other projects I've worked on. Um, and yet whenever I talk to anybody from like the city side, they're always, um, they keep referring to this project as like a fast track project. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of funny to me that shift in perspective. And it makes me realize that, um, you know, when you're dealing with public art, especially at a larger scale where, um, you know, this is just like one small piece of a much larger, like they, they're worrying about like, do we have like all the electrical gridding in and the plumbing and you know construction like there's so many other parts to this that I'm just like not at all a part of and so um, there's inevitably some kind of supply chain issue or delays and so I think like within that just being really mindful of your own like payment milestones and expenses and kind of making sure that you're you know getting what you need yeah and I think we, I can't remember if we had touched on it when we talked about it before when we were recording or we've just talked about it behind the scenes, but taking into consideration projects that span across multiple years, how that will land on your taxes and also like how you're spending that money oh, and like yeah. just making sure that you don't accidentally put yourself into a really tricky bind with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely didn't want to forget to mention that, <laughs> which I've never been in this position before where I've been working on a project that spanned multiple years. You know, usually it's, um, you know, it's like a project that I'm, I'm producing or like executing and getting paid for all in the same year. And so with how this is spread out, um, I, we have had to think, or I've had to think more uh, strategically about tax planning in ways that I haven't before. So this is good to keep in mind if you are going into a project and I guess this would apply even if you are like, let's say you're starting a project in like November or December, but you're not expecting to finish it until the new year. So if this is obvious to others, I'm very sorry, but this was a good learning experience for me um, because I was so concerned with making sure that I had enough you know, in this initial payment milestone. So there's like four, four that are spread out over the next like 
you know, six months or so. And like I said, the first like six months of the design phase, I kind of run into these cash flow issues where I felt like the payments were delayed and it was just kind of dragging on. And meanwhile, I was expecting to like, that was the money that I was going to live on. And so, you know, I had other kind of commissions and things I was working on, but I still, um, I was just feeling this urgency around, you know, like sending the invoices and then it can just sometimes take like two, three plus weeks to process. And, you know, it's just, just much slower and sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. So when it came to this fabrication phase, I wanted to make sure that we ha- really had everything we needed up front. And I was expecting that, um, you know, we had approval by city council in October. So I was thinking like things are going to kick off pretty quickly after that. But again, like things just take a lot longer than you think. So uh, I think it was just like the first week in December finally got the like the check from back in October when it was approved to get paid. So there's like a month, two months um, lag time in between. And then, um, you know, suddenly I had all these resources. I'm realizing that we're very close to the end of the year here. So whatever I have earmarked for project expenses, I really need to spend before the end of the year so that it doesn't trigger additional income tax because, you know, the IRS is going to look at that in April if I have that money sitting in my account and just think, oh, you made all of this money at the end of 2022, but not seeing that, well, I was going to spend that in February. You know, I just have to, I, that, that's, that's earmarked for this project. But, you know, obviously, like, they don't care. They're just, they just see, like, this is the money you made this year. And so I had to find, basically, I was, like, in beginning of December and, you know, a lot of that was going towards the material costs of this mosaic piece, but I really did have to find ways to like spend that money um, that was earmarked and invest in the studio before the end of the year so that it wouldn't impact my taxes, um, which is such a total mindset shift from being like entirely frugal and, you know, always trying to like save money, I think, and like find ways to cut back to all of a sudden you know, I was worried that, oh my gosh, I'd been like too fruit, like I've, I've given myself too much buffer with mosaic material. Like I'm gonna, you know, have to buy so much more than I need or I don't know. It's just, um, yeah, fun little like twist, but, um, I did find some ways. So, you know, obviously making sure that I had everything for the, like this next project was important, like getting all the all the mosaic tile, like all of the studio organization, like shelving and things to just keep it organized, getting my work tables, getting like, um, like what else did I buy? Gosh, uh, I feel like I've just been on this like spending spree for the past month. It reminds me of when you first like took on the, you know, huge painting commissions where you were like, gotta get this studio, gotta get the, uh, yeah. I can't even think of the scaffolding. Yeah. Um, Got to get, you know, all the paint from all the places. And yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like I'm in the same, like same position. But I was, I was nervous about ending up because I had so much leftover paint from that project. And so one thing I've been really looking at now are the return policies of the websites for things I've been buying stuff from so that if I do have excess and I fully expect mm-hmm. like you know you want to have everything you need so I know I'm going to have leftover tile but um yeah just like making sure that you have plenty but not like too too much um so just spending a lot of time like sitting in front of my computer 
I've been trying to keep really detailed spreadsheets um, using Google Sheets, have all my color-coded tabs up, you know, estimated expenses, actual expenses, all the different tile companies. So just really trying to keep track of everything. And then some other things that I hadn't really thought of that I guess if you're, you know, if you're a small business and it's towards the end of the year, um, I mean, now I realize why people make all these year-end donations and things. It's really for, in addition to the giving mm-hmm. giving spirit, it is uh, beneficial tax-wise. Um, but some, well, so another thing I did was um, I, I prepaid some of my studio rent. So some of that fabrication cost is going towards oh, nice. studio overhead, right? And usually I'm just like paying month to month like normal, but um, I made a special request to, you know, prepay my studio rent for the next four months so that helped you know take a big chunk out of it so things like that like mm-hmm. known um costs that I would have coming up in the new year I just tried to figure out like is there a way I can accelerate that for this year so that I can um you know bring down my yeah. my taxable income brilliant I love it Let's see. Is there anything else regarding the budget that we haven't talked about that you wanted to discuss or, you know, putting together that or things to consider when uh, paying yourself for these long term, large projects? Yeah, I feel like we've covered a lot. Sorry if that sounded really scattered, but I think, yeah, I mean, like the artist fee, that's kind of, you know, unknown up front. But then again, I think you can get creative throughout the process with how to preserve more of that or like invest more of that in the studio. Um, so in this case, like I'm fabricating part of the project myself, you know, I'm making sure to account for all of my studio expenses. So that's not income per se, but it is offsetting costs that I would otherwise just have to, you know, pay out of pocket. And so... I think there are like ways that you can just, you know, get creative with the budget and then making sure that you're advocating for or just communicating around the, you know, payment milestones, how much they are when they fall so that you can make sure your needs are met in addition to the project's needs and then just expecting delays, <laughs> making sure you have a buffer, whether that's other projects to hold you over or you know, building that buffer into your payment milestones so that in case there's an extra month or two that you have to you know, wait for something, then that's accounted for. Um, and then just in this, like again, maybe this is kind of unique to my situation at the end of the year, but just balancing between being really frugal and always trying to, you know, look for ways to be like cost efficient with being, making sure you're maximizing your deductions at the end of the year um, by like buying things you think you'll need in advance, making sure you're, yeah, just being strategic about your expenses, keeping detailed records. Uh, Literally, like as soon as I spend anything on this project, I just put it right into the spreadsheet. So I think especially when it comes to projects like this, I'm, I'm like extra try to be extra on top of it Um, because I'm normally like you know if I'm spending money on studio supplies throughout the year I'll just like throw the receipt in a box or I like label it on my email inbox so that I can review it later but I'm not like up to the minute tracking things on a day-to-day basis Um, so I think that's something that's kind of different about this too is like I'm just really trying to measure my income versus expenses as it comes in and out yeah and that's always really helpful information to have i mean we'll 
we'll talk about it on a future episode. Yeah. But just how how infor- how helpful it can be to have that information very clearly and how it can really help you to make very informed decisions rather than kind of flying by the seat of your pants and just hoping it all works out in the end. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add is that I think a lot of, I mean, like you said, we'll, we'll talk more about this later in the year. And I'm kind of just now, now that we're entering into the fabrication phase, like finally getting into the creative part. So I'm really excited to be mm-hmm. like, you know, very hands-on with this part of the process. Like that's why I proposed this type of mosaic was so that I could be the one to make it because I didn't want to just be a designer right. and then hand off the creative part to another fabricator. So there are some things like with the glass that is just not my specialty. And, you know, we are working with a local fabricator for that. But um, I think the project will start to get a lot more like creative and in the studio from here on out. But up to this point, you know, the last like six plus months have mostly been administrative. So it's just the research, like meeting with people on Zoom, Oh, you mentioned I just made my first site visit out there um, this month, like a few weeks ago to Arizona, where I got to, you know, meet with people in person and visit all the locations and um, like see samples. And so, again, it's like starting to be more tactile, but most of it has just been like sitting in front of my computer or spreadsheets, like doing research, purchasing materials, uh, tracking things. So it's a lot of administrative work. And I think that having had previous day jobs working in arts administration or working in higher education has really helped um, to build that skill set because it is really different from the work being done in the studio. So I just want to like mention that because I, I hope that it can be maybe encouraging to other artists that are working day jobs that those... Um, you know, I think when it comes to like talking about uh, your ambitions as an artist or for your career, there's, you know, a lot of talk about like leaving your day job, just like, you know, becoming a full-time artist. It's just like such an emphasis, right? And I think actually, though, there are a lot of really valuable skills you can learn in other types of work that even if your goal ultimately is to have your art practice sustain you, I think that those other jobs and other roles can give you valuable learning experiences that may carry over in unexpected ways. And, you know, I've had other day jobs in the past, like uh, commercial mural painting that maybe on the surface seemed more directly related to like what I'm doing now in the studio. But I really think it was the like, just like the communications and the the like time management or like project management aspect of uh, working previous day jobs where you're sitting in front of a desk that really has prepared me the most for these types of public art projects. So if you're working a day job now and you're feeling like discouraged or like you're stuck in a grind and you're just like dreaming about being in the studio or if your goal is to eventually one day transition into becoming a full-time artist, um, just don't discount this time that you're spending now um, at those jobs. And, you know, these are things that can help like set you apart or just prepare you uh, for... Like your job as an artist may look um, more similar to that than you might expect. Uh, Not to discourage anyone. I mean, I I feel like, you know, I'm I'm much more fulfilled and I feel very, very grateful to be able to do this now for a living. But I think there were a lot of valuable skills that came from those roles that may have just been like harder to 
to learn um or like I could have learned them like by doing or like through these projects but in a way it's like like the stakes are higher because this is my work and like my name is on the line in a way and if you are at a day job at least now you're getting to have those learning experiences and build up those skills while you're working for someone else and for someone else's vision and so when it comes time to Mm -hmm. like really go all in on yourself um you'll just feel that much more prepared yeah and it's it's kind of amazing how much um i think it's very easy to like acknowledge the very obvious parts of our like artist tool belt or the the skills that we have that are part of the things we consider that make us artists i guess Um, But there's so much more of our life experiences that we bring into our studios than we realize. And like, I haven't worked in an office in quite that way, but I, I feel like I'm constantly surprised at how much my like, knowledge and experience from working retail, even working in food service where it's like, oh, yeah, I, I know how to talk to people. I know how to approach strangers. And I did not know how to do that before. And that's super helpful when it comes to being in any kind of environment where I have to interact with people, especially if I'm uncomfortable. Um, And like just being able to maneuver different circumstances and situations uh, and problem solving than you even realize. um, It's helpful to know even more places where that can apply and be helpful. Yeah. Those transferable skills, man, they're valuable. (laughs) They really are. I know in your notes here, you had like a section kind of around communication uh, as far as working with different people and collaborating and kind of uh, Mm, mm -hmm. communicating your vision with folks outside of the art field where, you know, obviously you're working with architects, with contractors, with city officials that are like, all right, convince me this. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to dive into that or if we wanted to save it for part two of the public art discussion or, or for another, if we wanted to do another episode on just around like communication and collaboration. Yeah. And the mouthful that is saying those two words. <laughs> communication, <back>. collaboration. <laughs> Just say it 10 times <laughs> fast. Yeah. Communication, collaboration, <laughs> communication, collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, I think that relates to the, whether it's through a day job or just like, you know, getting that experience through other other life experiences, like that uh, is, it you know, becomes really important in public art. And it's been a, a cool part of the process mm-hmm. that I really didn't expect to enjoy so much, like just getting to work with all of these diverse types of people or getting to like, um, I don't know, part of the time in Tempe was like going to look at these concrete samples for the mosaic. Like what's the concrete going to look like underneath it? Like what color is it going to be? Mm-hmm. What kind of texture? Like just, you know, at, like talking to the guys that work there, uh, they were kind of apologetic. Like, oh, we don't have uh, really many mosaic samples to show you. Like, you know, this is, we don't have m- much creative and uh, I was like, no, I, you don't understand. I, what I want to see is just the concrete, like no mosaic. Like I know what that looks like. I want to see what the concrete samples look like. And right. I think just like, you know, getting to share like your work or interests with and like learn from other people is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I guess another example, like how um, how that's come up, I can think of is through the proposal process of the Rhode Island Project, like the other one that I wasn't selected for. Um, one of the panelists I think I mentioned was um, the head of their uh, maintenance facilities and um, mm-hmm. just kind of like realizing that this person has an entirely different set of values around the artwork. Like they're thinking about it from a maintenance perspective. They had to, you know, there was another piece on campus that had, uh, it was like interactive, it dealt with software and the software refused to update Mm -hmm. and it was a huge headache for their team. And there was Uh, another piece that had like, like exterior lights um, that would always go out and they were really hard to replace because they were really specific to this piece. So just like those types of things Um, that maybe the artist wasn't necessarily thinking about about but you kind of realize um not that it needs to like change or shape the work that you're making um but you know it it is a consideration and it's um I think just like realizing the the way that you so I guess for example like in the proposal maybe I wouldn't have thought twice about even bringing up the maintenance aspect of a work even if it's really easy to maintain, but just making sure to like acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, what's great about this type of work is that it requires very little maintenance and (laughs) this will be very easy for your team. And so just recognizing other people's values and how you can like connect your work to what might be important to them. Yeah. Oh, I think that's such an important thing to just consider in whatever, I don't know, it's it's a very valuable life lesson. (laughs) in like considering the lifetime of your work, who it affects, who's working on it, who's maintaining it. Um, but you know, that also expands to our humanity and you know, how, how our words and actions land and, and who they affect. And Absolutely. You know, it's wonderful. I'm so excited to keep seeing how this process goes for you and to continue to see you explore public art. And I'm excited to, well, share this episode, but yeah, keep keep learning from this experience as you're going through it and, and more in the future. Yeah, me too. It's been fun to share about it. I think I was nervous to record this uh, episode because there was so much to cover. I just have all these like scattered thoughts from the last, you know, seven months of uh, working on this and I was not sure how to like how to communicate it all in this one episode, but hopefully this was useful um, just mm-hmm. as some frame of reference or a little light shed into the process because, again, I know that it um, the world of public art can feel very opaque. Like, how do these projects actually come to be? And so I'm looking forward to sharing more about that as we're, you know, just starting to enter the fabrication phase for this project, um, scheduled to hopefully open in spring, summer 2023. Um, pending any construction delays. Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention, just as an added resource for anyone that is interested. Um, if there, I mean, there are resources out there, and again, hopefully this conversation was helpful, but um, there is a book that I would recommend uh, called The Artist's Guide to Public Art by Lynn Bassa, uh, who's a public artist, and I would highly recommend it. It's, um, it's kind of similar to art slash work, Amanda, by um, Mm -hmm. our friend Heather Bandari, which is an amazing, like, uh, just work Bible on all things uh, art career. So the Artist Guide to Public Art is like that, but for public art specifically. Mm -hmm. So definitely get yourself a copy of that. Actually, it's in our Beyond the Studio um, book club uh, on bookshop.org, which we can link in our show notes. So you can buy it there. Excellent. And... 
I like it. Yeah, more to come. Excited to share more. Yeah, we'll be back in a couple weeks with uh, another topical episode where I will be walking you through my finances (laughs) (laughs) and talking about... Again, we're recording this at the end of December, but I'm about to dive into my 2022 numbers so that I can go into 2023 with a real clear vision. And so I'm excited to share that with you guys. And I'm, you know, just talk to you about how I've been figuring that out and and the, the impact of getting a real good look at your finances, not just like knowing them in your head, but actually visualizing them as artists with our, you know, our eyes. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm excited to talk about that. Some fun, unexpected stories. (laughs) Stay tuned. Yes, there's a very funny, (laughs) very funny, unexpected story that happened today that uh, it ends really well, but also is one of those like, (gasps) moments. (laughs) (laughs) we'll just leave it at that so yeah stay tuned tuned. (laughs) but yeah i feel like i should have a much better uh idea after sitting down a little more too of how um like this public project for example fits within the larger context of my year and other projects so i'm i'm looking forward to that conversation because i feel like it's the time of year to reflect on our finances among other things so It'll be a good, yeah. well-timed conversation. I Yeah, I'm excited to sort of end the year, start a new year. Just, I mean, I guess at this point, we're already in the new year with listeners. So, yeah. Yeah, you're in the middle of the public art process. So as you continue, we'll keep listeners updated as you learn more. So we'll definitely have a follow-up episode in the future. And uh, we're excited to get back into more topical episodes and artist interviews. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! Oh, sorry. I can definitely hear Sprout snoring now. It's very funny. Um. Oh, oh, I can't hear her at all. But um, that's so cute. See if I can get the mic in there. Might wake her up, but just might work. Oh, no, she woke up. I wish I had one of those tiny microphones that you see on like TikTok and Instagram where people will put the tiny microphone up to their cat and you Aww. hear it snoring. Next time, listeners, next time. Come back for (laughs) Beyond the Studio ASMR. Just kidding.